This podcast is sponsored by Traction Capital Partners, a private investment firm based out of Tacoma, Washington. Traction Capital focuses on acquiring businesses based in the Pacific Northwest that have between $1 and $5 million in earnings. For more information, please visit TractionCP.com. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and investors to learn how to acquire and run companies. For more information, visit alexbridgman.com. Trish Higgins was the guest on my very first podcast episode and was kind enough to share her time with me when I had no downloads, no show, and no website. Funny enough, that first episode is still my most downloaded episode to date. A lot has happened since then, and I'm very excited to have Trish on the show for a second episode. In this episode, we cover Trish's recent move to the operating side, how Chenmark has evolved, including what's become easier and more difficult over time, and we dive briefly into landscaping. For those listeners interested in eventually operating your own company, Chenmark has begun recruiting future operators into existing leadership roles at current portfolio companies, where they will be trained for eventually running a future portfolio company. If this is interesting to you, I highly recommend reaching out to Trish. Finally, Chenmark writes a weekly newsletter called Weekly Thoughts about their views on investing and operating in small companies, behavior and psychology, and concepts from other disciplines that can be brought over to business. I've been a reader for years and I've found it extremely valuable. Go to chenmarkcapital.com slash weekly thoughts to subscribe. And now, please enjoy my second conversation with Trish Higgins. In the Yale case study that I'll, I'll link to in the description, it said that you're going to take over as the CEO of a new portfolio company. Is that still the plan? That has happened. That is active right now. Excellent. How's it going? It is going well. Um, so we bought a, well, this is just proof that we're not particularly smart. We bought a tourism business on February 28th, 2020, which uh, you could imagine didn't really feel great by like March 28th of 2020. But it, overall, it's actually been good. And it, it's really nice to be a long-term owner because I think long-term, the company has um, some really interesting characteristics and is something we're excited about owning. So it is a, uh, it's a sightseeing whale watch puffin kind of ecotourism business, uh, boat tour business uh, based up here in Maine. You know, it's very, very straightforward. It takes tourists out on boats to uh, see puffins, which some people are really, really into, um, as well as whale watching, harbor cruises, sort of scenic tours. And uh, it's an incredibly stable business. It is um, a very profitable business. Um, and those are two things we really like to see. And so it's about an hour north of where we live here. And I'm the one who found the deal and kind of led the deal process. And the owner was very much looking to retire. And we said, you know, we maybe we could have convinced him to stay around for a year or two, but we didn't really have anybody internally we felt like would be a good fit for it. And I said, you know, hey, I'd love to run it, have the opportunity to be in the seat and kind of be an operator and uh, it's been super fun. So the first couple of months were really about seeing if we would be able to open up and under what circumstances due to COVID. We opened up in mid-June and we have limited capacity. So usually our boats take out 150 people. Uh, so they're quite large. This season we're limited to 50 because of the government restrictions. So I wouldn't say it's going to be like a banner financial year, but I think we'll still end up being profitable, which is great. We still actually have, we're selling out pretty, as long as it's sunny, we, we sell out. 
which is great. It's been fun to just be, take everything that we do at Chenmark, but then not necessarily be the one like telling people about it, but being the one just doing it myself. Um, and I've got a really awesome team, something that I sort of stumbled into and they've been really great. And I feel like the fact that we stepped into to the acquisition and then hit COVID, um, the team's probably closer than it would be otherwise because of it. So yeah, that's what I've been focusing on doing and uh, we'll be focusing on for, for this season at the very least. So it's been fun. It's been really fun. Yeah, it sounds like it. So with you and Palmer both now running companies, is this, I'm thinking about what could th- what this is a reflection of. Is, is this a reflection of you guys wanting more hands-on operating experience to just get that learning curve going? Or is this more of, it was hard to find candidates, you know, to, re- to replace the owner CEO? Or is there something else with a change of strategy going on? So I think a little bit of both. In Palmer's situation, it was more, I don't want to say like forced transition, but he'd been, he was very, very familiar with the companies. Things weren't working out with the person that we'd recruited to run the company. And so we felt like we had to make a change. We didn't feel like there was anyone internal at the company and Palmer seemed like a really good fit. And so he stepped into the role and initially just said like, you know, for the first sort of season and year, and then we'll figure things out. And right now he's saying, well, I can add the most value to Chenmark in this role because I see quite a great, good, solid pathway to growth and value creation in this role. And then in my case, it was, so I started, so when Palmer took that role on, then I became head of deals. There's two things. One is that there would be certain deals that have zero interest in running. And then there were certain ones that I'd be like, oh, this is like really sounds like a lot of fun and I could see myself doing that. And so that was just more like a personal interest sort of thing. And I think that given that we want to do this for a long time, we said like, you know, I think it would be good for all of us to kind of be in the seat at some point because it is different, you know, sort of suggesting versus the one doing and and, and being able to kind of see both sides of the coin. And I think Palmer, we saw with his situation, him being in the CEO seat gives him a lot of credibility when talking to other CEOs or, or operators because, you know, we're not just like, you know, investors that are like out to lunch and have no idea what's going on. And so, that was sort of one part of it. The other part is we certainly, I think over the past like two years realized like we really need to spend more time on developing talent. And what we want going forward is that, you know, we we don't want to be in a situation where, well, there's two situations. One is that we have a deal that we really like, but we don't have a person to run it. And then the other side of that is that, you know, we have a company that we own, but we don't like the person running it. But we don't know have any options. We don't want to be in either of those situations. So we said, all right, you know, how do we fix that problem? That's a problem that takes a couple of years to fix. And what we really want is people who come and work for us at Chenmark first, and that we really get to know them, they get to know us, you kind of develop a level of trust. Then we have that person go and work in a leadership role in one of our companies you know, COO, CFO, head of sales, something like that. And then that person, as we acquire new companies, becomes the CEO um, of that company. And so what we want is the ability to sort of anybody who's in a, a senior leadership role for new acquisitions, that there are people that, you know, have been trained in the way we like to think and the way we like to run things. 
that is also part of it for us is us having the experience, um, but then also like us starting to like generate our own talent internally so that if I want to go off and do something else or Palmer does or anything like that happens, or we find a new company um, that we have our own kind of talent pipeline, we're, we're still building it out. But we have one person who's come in to be COO is now CEO of a company. Um, we've had one person who came to work for us now is CFO of another company and then two people who are working here right now that I think very shortly will probably go on to be, you know, senior leaders in, in our companies. So uh, it's a little bit of just, we want everybody to have, be able to play in both worlds. How do you find these candidates who you think would be good eventual operators and you feel confident that if you can train them and give them some extra skills that they have the the personality and drive to figure it out and learn how to be a CEO one day? How do you find those people? And then how do you evaluate them? Well, they listen to your podcast and then they email me (laughs) and then they say they want a job. Um, Well, seriously, it's a little bit of everything. You know, some of it has been just in connecting. Um, You know, the two people we just hired um, are just coming out of business school and they happen. One is um, the guy who wrote the Yale case on us. So we got to know him through that endeavor. Um, and then, an, a, yeah, which is great. Um, and then another guy is somebody who has uh, family ties to Maine. And, and I had met at an event he organized a couple of years ago um, and kept in touch while he was at business school and then sort of connected with us afterwards. So it's a lot of more the kind of ad hoc recruiting, I think, we get people who email in all the time saying, hey, I'm interested in joining or I'm interested in doing something else that's a little bit kind of, you know, still business, but, you know, a little bit off the beaten path of like the traditional bulge bracket experience. Um, and so we, we usually have a conversation with anybody who reaches out to us and kind of keep them in the file and, you know, reach out to them. And so for us, it's more about finding the right people than it is about like hiring like one person every year or something like that. So, you know, if we don't find anyone we think is a good fit, we just won't hire anyone. But if we find like three people we think would be really great, then like we'd probably try to make it work to hire all three. Right now it's been opportunistic. And for our size, that works because we're only looking to hire, you know, a couple people here and there. We're not really looking to hire, you know, like 20 people or 50 people or anything like that. So that, that it works. It's been working okay for us so far. You're now five years into running Chenmark. What's gotten easier over the five years and then what's gotten harder? It sounds like talent's one that's shifted back and forth a little bit. I think that sourcing deals is easier than when we first started because I think we can approach people now more as sort of business owners um, with a track record and maybe they like our track record, maybe they don't, but at least we have people like they can talk to and say like, We bought our business from that person, like go talk to them about how it went or talk to the employees or any of that sort of thing. So I think we have a track record and, you know, we're we're real. So it helps for sure to to be able to have conversations. Whereas before, you know, when you're first starting, um, I always sort of tell this to searchers. You know, unfortunately, like it's a lot easier to buy a company once you own a company. Um, (laughs) So uh, that's just the nature of it and brokers or anybody, they just kind of, it's easier for them to work with us. Um, and we also know what we're doing. I think the first time we did a deal, you know, we had no idea what we're doing. So it's all just kind of made up. 
but right now we have some sense of what works for us, what doesn't, all that. So I'd say that's easier, harder. I think it, it can be harder now, and this is gonna be any business, the, the communication across, even between like James Palmer and myself or the people here, sometimes there's so much stuff going on, especially with Palmer running his own company, me running my own company, kind of James manning down the fort here at Chenmark and everyone who's working at Chenmark's reporting to him, all that going on. I think sometimes things can kind of get lost in the shuffle. And so we have to be better about carving out time for ourselves to talk about things and all that sort of stuff. So it's not like a problem, but I'd say it's it's harder because, you know, when we first started, James Palmer and I lived together and we worked together and James and I had no kids. And like, so like we just hung out all of every day together. So we just knew everything that was going on. Whereas now if I see Palmer once a week, like that's great. Things are busier, but you know, honestly, it's all good. It's all good. I, I, I take that as a trade-off. What systems and not necessarily just communication, but what systems did you initially implement that you've had to scrap and turn into something else? Yeah, we've tried a lot of different things. We had one false start with Slack. Now we use it all the time across the company. So that's pretty much our like main mechanism of communication. And then when it's busy, like that's really how we communicate with one another. And then if there's something we need to talk about, we say like, okay, we need to have a meeting about such and such um, at a particular time. James Palmer and I try to connect um, like weekly for a check-in meeting. I have to admit that since I started running this company, I've been the one that's been delinquent in joining those meetings <laughs> um, because I've been sort of boots on the ground um, in our first busy season. And so I am 100% to blame for that. That's pretty much been it. We have a really nice tradition of like a Friday lunch meeting where all, you know, everybody at the Chenmark team and anybody at the companies can can dial in. Some people, it's sort of, that's, that part of it is slowly expanding. So it sort of started off as just the, the Chenmark people. And we stole a little bit of this from a book called Traction, which is like very popular with like small business operators. Um, and we went through one training session and then we just took part of it for ourselves and adjusted it. But we go through like a quarterly goal setting process of saying like everyone just throws out like what's the most important thing to have done in the next like 90 days in the in the company. And, you know, we kind of just throw things out about like what are what are not even in the 90 days, but just like what what are important things going on with the company? And then we like whittle it down to like what's the most important things to happen over the next 90 days then we kind of like assign them to different people who make them a little bit more like a smart goal. So like um, specific, measurable, attainable, something else goal. And then everybody sort of has, and they're called rocks. So then everyone has their rock of like the things that they're trying to achieve over the next 90 days. And then when we touch base on Fridays, we started off and people kind of go one at a time. You say one good thing, that happened personally, one good thing that happened professionally, um, and then you give a status update on your rocks, and then we go around the, 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 the table and do that. And it sometimes it takes, somebody's update might be three minutes long, and sometimes somebody's update might be 15 minutes long, depending on what's going on. But we found that to be like a really great way for our whole team to not only keep it does three good things. It brings us all together. It keeps us focused on like the most important things as opposed to like the the little kind of like 
distractions. So it's like, are we moving forward on our on our key priorities as a company? But then I really love how we share something that's good that's going on personally, um, because then you get a sense of like what's going on in someone's life outside of of work, and, and it's a really good way for us to all get to know each other. You know, so and so is you know going camping this week. So and so's kid learned how to ride a bike. So and so you know is trying to learn how to bake bread. Yeah, you know, what and they were great. You know, so whatever. Um, but especially during COVID and in, in a in a difficult time like that, it's been a nice way for everybody to be forced to think about something good that's going on in their life and then share it with everyone. So that's been really, really great. And so if anybody's ever in Portland, we always encourage them to share, you know, join in on our Friday meeting, you know, be be part of that because I think it's a, becoming a big part of our culture. What other elements of culture have you tried to drive over the last five years that you found to be really effective in beyond Friday meetings, like keeping people together and in tune with what's going on across the portfolio? So I'll give James pretty much, Palmer might disagree with me, but I'll give James pretty much like 99% of the credit for moving this, prioritizing the work on this and moving it forward. I think when we realized, you know, we started, we bought some companies and then we started thinking about like, what do we need to do? And James in particular was like, you know, we can't hold people accountable to actions unless like we articulate like what the standards are. And so like, I might see somebody do something that I'm like, well, that's just not right. And James, I think correctly said in a much more patient way is like, well, unless we articulate what the values and standards are, we can't really be upset if we feel like somebody's failing short of them because we haven't told them what the rules of the game are. That kicked off. And again, he did like 99% of the work on this, you know, us thinking through like, what are our values? Kind of like, what are we all about? He, um, you know, wrote a lot, created presentations, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then uh, focused on like, now that we've got this all kind of together, then like, how do we communicate it to, you know, all of our CEOs, you know, how do we include it into performance reviews? How do we share it with the team? And then like, what's the balance between like Chenmark sort of values and port co value? Like, you can't really superimpose something on a company that's been around sometimes for the company we just bought has been around since the 1930s, right? So we can't just come in and say like, these are your values now, right? Um, so then like, what's the intersection between those things? I think that has been a huge project that's taken multiple years and is still something that we're, you kind of have to live in terms of, you know, I think the big part is like making hiring decisions, for instance, like, or, or even, you know, termination decisions, you know, so-and-so is not abiding by our values, you know, is there a spot for them on the team? So that's been a huge, huge part of it. I think it'll really set us up well for like the next five and plus more years, but is something that we are, um, has been a huge change for us. Core values are play the long game, keep score. So we care about like how we're doing like relative to others, like things have to have score to know we can't sort of be ambiguous. Um, and that's a big part of that. It goes into like how we us focusing on working, integrating data um, into everything we do. Another core value is chase better. And that is basically always striving to be like better tomorrow than we were today. So 
we just have an unwavering sort of belief in like our and our team's own potential and, and our ability to always get better and then put the team first. So we really don't, we try not to have any superstars, basically, like we're all just trying to do what needs to be done without, you know, any ego. And so we're really trying to create like a team environment um, and all that sort of stuff. So I figure if I'm going to spend five minutes talking about my core values, I should probably actually tell you what they are. With being at Chenmark on the holding company level and developing these core values and learning how to build culture, now that you're in the, the operator's shoes, do you have a, a, a special appreciation now for the difficulty in implementing and, and keeping those values going and just operating a business in general? Yeah, I think it's hard. Um, I think it comes into play most, it's like everything, it, it comes into play most during like the difficult times. So like, if you feel like, you know, you're a CEO and you're somebody, an employee isn't abiding by the core values, but you don't have anyone to replace them. Like, what are you supposed to do? Or like, there's an ability to make some money short term that isn't great for like long-term sustainability. Like, what do you do? And frankly, some of those, even just like, like intellectual questions, you can kind of debate. I think the problem sometimes is like when you're operating, it's just like you're really busy just with like a lot of things that come up. And uh, the day-to-day can sometimes like, you can say you have these sort of values, but then you just get really busy on the day-to-day and you're not necessarily like making decisions based on those values. And then, you know, all of a sudden then you don't have any values. So I think it's, you kind of have to constantly remind yourself that like, instead of just like reacting day to day to what's going on, it's like you have to sort of pause a little bit and then like remind yourself of what your core values are first and then start making like decisions on like how you want to spend your day or how you want to make decisions or any of that sort of thing. But I think a lot of people just sort of like they wake up and they just start going. Um, And I think that's probably like the fastest way to like erode your values it's usually not like one thing they talk about in like a business school case study. Like I think usually it's like an erosion of death by a thousand cuts sort of thing. So I think that's one thing I probably appreciate a bit more now than I did like six months ago. With you and Palmer being CEOs, the incentives for you as you know non-managers of or operators of companies is pretty straightforward since you have ownership over them. But for managers who don't have that ownership in other portfolio companies, how do you incentivize them to keep those values and then just drive a, a strong company? I mean, one is just education, you know, and just t- like consistency of talking about these things. And then it's, you know, including those, some of those things in uh, like a performance review. And then from a, like a, like a more tangible perspective, like we, you know, compensate everyone based on free cash flow, which is like a, our core metric. And people have the opportunity to purchase stock in um, Chenmark Holdings and uh, with their free cash flow uh, bonus, uh, assuming they generate free cash flow. And so, you know, people are only going to want to invest in Chenmark Holdings if they believe in the values and uphold the values and like our, our, our owners as well. So, you know, over time, I really hope that everybody who runs one of our companies and, you know, beyond just running it, but down, you know, through the company, you know, our owners. So there's not as much of a delineation between like, well, I'm not an owner of the company. I'm sort of just an employee. I really hope that we are able to, you know, it's not just Palmer and I, it's, you know, a lot of other people who are saying like, oh, we're all trying to build this together. And and, and that's starting to happen. And it'll take 
a long time for that to really play out. But I think that like, that's really going to be a, a big factor of like, A, why somebody wants to come and work for us is because they have that opportunity. Um, and then why someone keeps working for us is because they're invested, you know, they're part of something that's bigger than just their one individual role or company. They're part of something that's bigger and we're all kind of trying to build it together. How do you incentivize managers to uh, send free cash flow back to Chenmark if there's no good use for it internally? Like, is there a bonus, like a percentage of free cash flow sent back? But then there's some also there's also an incentive for them to invest in their company if there's some project internally that has you know good prospects. How do you balance the two of those? What we do is the, the free cash flow is based on the amount of equity that was invested in the business initially. And so as people kind of kick cash back up, then the, the yield on their, you know, th- then it's like they've returned capital to us and their, their ability to then have like a higher uh, split goes forward. Yeah, we basically like are, are, have incented people to kick the cash back up. By doing so, they're able to generate a higher bonus for themselves. So with this travel company, you now have the dough company, travel, and then a few landscaping companies. You originally set out with the idea to build a diversified holding company under Chenmark. Is the landscaping focus a just a comfort level with that industry? Or is there some thesis you're driving with landscaping companies? So for landscaping, that sort of happened, I'd say partly by accident. Like we bought one company because we just liked the industry and we're okay owning one company. But by owning one company, it that generated deal flow towards us um, because people then knew like we bought companies and in that space and we got to know other people in the space and we sort of ended up getting opportunities that we wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And I think every one of our companies, we would be okay if that was just like the only company we owned in landscaping. Now, obviously, since we have more of a footprint, you know, you start talking about, you know, should we do more in landscaping? Should we not? What sort of synergies can you get between the companies? All that sort of stuff. And we've taken a fairly decentralized approach because each of our companies is sort of the top provider in their local market and there's value to that. And so I think the worst thing we could do would be to like take away that local market feeling from the company. And so, you know, we've really let every company run fairly independently. And then we do a lot of work on the back end to sort of standardize like credit cards and insurance and, you know, banking and um, some tech things and, and whatnot. We still look at landscape companies. I think that our bar, like our standard for landscape companies is quite high now because we know a lot about the space and we know like very specifically what we're interested in and what we're not, which is the benefit of having a couple of years of experience of owning the companies. We kind of are a lot better at evaluating them than we were when we first bought them. Um, and so I think we're still certainly, you know, would purchase more in that space, but we do really like the idea of building a diversified portfolio. And I think COVID like really shows the like why that's important is like you never really know what's going to happen in the world. You know, obviously, tour, you know, this tourism business we bought, 
isn't doing great this year, I do think it will do well over the long term. But, you know, if for some reason we had been like super concentrated in tourism businesses, like that would be really, really bad. Whereas like right now, between like a couple of these different sectors, like we're generally doing okay. And so I think like we like to look at everything along the lines of like, would we be okay with just owning this one company? And if we just own that, would it be okay? We don't really like to say like, oh, well, we could buy more or we could like, you know, consolidate it in with something else or whatever. We we just kind of like to, it might not be like the most sophisticated way of, of thinking about it, but for right now, we just like to look at things on like a case by case basis. And the concentration in landscaping is just because there happened to be a couple of good deals that came along that, you know, we felt like we kind of needed to make work. With your bar now for landscaping being very high, what elements in any new landscaping deal do you look for now that you have lots of experience in the space? We wouldn't really look for anything that's not in our area. So like if we were going to buy something, we we would want it to be like contiguous with a a region we already service. So that eliminates like most of the country. We would be looking and it gets kind of nuanced. So there's all like the classic things like one, you want like an actual org chart, you know, not just like a guy running around doing a lot of work. We would for landscaping specifically, we'd really be looking at like the contracts they have and the structure of them and how many years left on them, like how are they actually pricing the work, um, how that's all kind of, how that's all working. And then a big part, not really so much in Maine, but in other areas, particularly as you get further south, looking at the workforce is really important in terms of like all the proper documentation and paperwork and like all that sort of stuff. It's not necessarily that people are doing things like wrong on purpose, but there's a lot of like HR, DOL paperwork that needs to happen, um, particularly when you have like large, like entry level workforces. Um, and a lot of that sometimes companies just like it kind of gets like lost in, in the in the busyness of, of work. And, you know, we don't really want to spend our time doing that um, or cleaning that up. And so, you know, we really make sure that like, if we're looking for companies, like they really have like good HR processes in place, like they actually have an employee handbook, they have are doing things properly. It doesn't sound like those are really high standards, <laughs> like have profitable contracts and employee records, but in landscaping, that's not necessarily always the case. That part of it is just us. Um, finding a landscape company that has all of that is a little bit few and far between, particularly once you get to once you're looking for the slightly larger companies and right now we're not really looking at smaller companies because it's a lot more effective for us just to to grow into a new area than to buy contracts so then you don't roll up smaller companies underneath current landscaping companies so we had we have done some of that and so i'll sort of make the, the distinguish between like landscaping and lawn care so lawn care is just put doing like fertilizer treatments to your lawn as well as like tick and mosquito control and that's like in pe- mostly residential people's backyards. That's the company that Palmer grows. And that company can be quite acquisitive because it makes a lot of sense to buy contracts in that space. In the landscaping space, which is more like mowing lawns, planting flowers, pruning trees, all that sort of thing. Those businesses we have are much more commercial focused and a larger customer size. In those ones, we have found like it generally it doesn't make as much sense to buy contracts, but in lawn care, it does. 
So lawn care will probably grow quite a lot through acquisition. Landscaping is really where we're like, it makes more sense for us to grow organically. So why in landscaping is it not as advantageous to acquire contracts? Is there something specifically about landscaping versus lawn care that makes it more challenging? Yeah, so lawn care is very, very standardized. So it tends to be, you know, you've got five treatments a year for your customers. You're going, you're doing the same thing every time pretty much. Everyone who works for you is like a licensed technician. It's a very sort of standardized process. And what you really care about is like the density of your route. So like you can have one guy do eight properties a day instead of three properties a day because he has to drive so far between them. So like just buying some small out operators client list in like an adjacent zip code makes a lot of sense. In landscaping, contracts are really not standardized they can really be like wildly different. And typically you're better off just like waiting to bid a new contract. Because often people like want to sell the contracts that aren't profitable. Often a smaller entity in landscaping will tend to have like one owner operator who's doing a lot of the work and not necessarily like paying himself or isn't paying himself on the books anyways. And so then you're like the amount that they want for you to purchase the contract is like it, it like the contract is actually worth more to them than it is to us. We, we've done it a couple of times. It just tends to be quite messy. And I'm not sure like we've really added any value by doing it as opposed to just, you know, standing, going to a new area and saying like, we're here now and like go out and try to win contracts ourselves. Last episode, you talked about the Chenmark car wash and a little bit of your playbook there, if you will. Within landscaping and lawn care, how has the playbook evolved? And is there a certain set of software systems that have become standardized across all your companies and any new landscaping companies you would acquire? So the car wash hasn't really changed much. It's pretty much tech, finance, HR, um, marketing. Uh, so like all those things are basically the same. Um, in terms of systems, not really. I don't remember the specifics of, of when of what we had when we talked. But, you know, right now kind of everyone's on the same HR system. So everyone kind of gets up and, and running on that. We ha- now have like a director of technology, someone who works with him. And so I'd say like our tech onboarding process is much more streamlined and standardized than it has been in the past. Um, and so that's much more like centrally managed now, which is, which is, which is really great. Finance. I wouldn't say we have any like systems necessarily that are like off the shelf type systems for that. That's more, we thought about trying to get everyone on the same system. I think to be honest, it, the idea of that created more trouble and I think it's worth what we care about is just like the output, not necessarily like the system. Cause some people might have a great system using QuickBooks online, somebody else like at the company I run, we use zero. They're both perfectly fine systems. We don't need to be on some same system. What we really need is like an Excel of the financial reports that gets output. And then we've created our own system where things get aggregated. So we haven't really like standardized like financial reporting systems or anything like that across the board because uh, it just doesn't seem worth it. So within landscaping and lawn care, specifically for routes and project management, what kind of software do you use now? And is there software that you like, you, you take a picture after the work is done and that gets sent to the client? Like what, what systems have you found to be really effective? 
Palmer's kind of, so in lawn care, we use, there's a company called Real Green, but that's like a industry specific system. You know, you do routing, customer communication, like all of that sort of stuff. Landscaping, we use a company called, all of our companies are on the same system called Aspire that does, you know, all you do proposals in there, uh, labor hour tracking, like all of that, as well as customer communication. I'm not sure how much is actually being used on the customer communication side, um, but that's really how people are, are everything in terms of like operating the business is going through that. For the tourism business, we use a company called Fair Harbor for all of our ticketing and reservations. They've been great. So I'll give a shout out to Fair Harbor. They've been, they've been really good. So Centralizing back office functions, it sounds like with accounting software, at least as an example, there's benefit to keeping that stuff at the at the company level rather than standardizing it all in one central location. Is there some element of just control or behavioral benefits to letting companies have control over their systems rather than you taking that away from them and perhaps taking it out their hands, but they don't have as much transparency into that system as they would if they control it themselves? I'd say we're pretty big believers in decentralization. So I feel like if I took over, you know, landscape company somewhere else's back office processing, I probably wouldn't do a very good job at it. Like, I think they can do a better job at it than we could. It might mean inefficiencies in the sense that, you know, maybe you have two people doing some of the same things. Um, But we feel like, you know, unless people are in the field owning the system, then we can't really hold them accountable to it. I might have a different opinion if all we owned was landscape companies, but we don't, you know, if we wanted to own 20 companies that were all in different spaces, like how would you, how would you do that? And you can't centralize the back office processes for all of those things. I think you kind of have to leave it to the companies. And, and I think that honestly, the people who want to run those companies want to own that as well, because they want to own the process and be held accountable for the results. And so we don't really ever foresee the Chenmark team, like at HQ, for lack of a better word, like being that big, because we like don't really want to do a lot of that work. We want the companies to do that work because then they can own the results, good or bad. And I think that's what like talent wants is like they want ownership, right? Yeah, that's how we that's how we think about it. And uh, nothing's really changed that makes us feel like we should do anything that differently. Is there a challenge for the next five years of Chenmark that in terms of just scaling or improving that is like the number one or number two challenge you see in over the next few years? I'd say like the number one priority is like talent and this sort of talent pipeline we're trying to build is continuing. I I think that's the most important thing for us. And so, and it will be a challenge, but it's also opportunity, you know, uh, same thing. Um, And so getting people in to work with us out to the companies, find new companies, have those people lead the companies, have them do a good job at that and prove that cycle, I think will really be what the next like five years is all about. And I think that if we can really build that, I think we'll have something that's really cool. Uh, Because I think a lot of people will want to do that. Because I also think that as we build something like that, it doesn't necessarily mean like, oh, you're going to be the CEO of X company for the next like 30 years or whatever, like maybe you can go from being the CEO to that. And maybe you want to go be the COO of something else, or maybe a CEO of another company that pops up or whatever. So I think we can offer as we grow, we can, we can offer more flexibility and like a really, I think, interesting career path for people, especially 
younger, you know, younger people who are kind of looking for something a little different, but doing that and building that, I, I can guarantee will be a messy process. <laughs> um, and I'm sure that there will be some things that we do that are really, that seem to work really well. And there will be other things that we do that like fail, like really miserably and, and we'll learn from either, you know, putting the wrong person in the wrong seat. Well, really we'll be putting the wrong person in the wrong seat. I think that's really like the most important thing we have to do for the next five years, our biggest challenge, but biggest opportunity for sure. Thank you for sharing again for a, a second episode. This was awesome. I'm, I'm glad we got to do a, a follow-up one. Yeah, absolutely. I'm. Uh, thanks for asking me. I feel. Uh, I feel like it's been a while since we uh, chatted in Boston in the the cafeteria um, <laughs> section of uh, where were we at the, uh, the Hancock Center. So hopefully, another couple of years from now, we can do another update one, and all these things will have played out. Look forward to maybe we'll get you at the the Friday meeting next time. You're uh, next time we're able to travel and be normal again. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Definitely looking forward to that. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. For more information, including show notes, transcripts, and other links, please visit alexbridgman.com.